0: This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Overcoming great challenges like COVID-19 requires great cooperation. This is Dan Hilferty, CEO of Independence Blue Cross. Most of us never imagined we'd be facing an outbreak of this magnitude. But in the face of this challenge, hospitals, public officials, and business leaders have come together. Through effective cooperation, these leaders are taking steps to keep us safe. Slowing the rate of infection from the virus will help hospitals care for those who need attention most. Remember, stay home. Leave only for essential needs. Stay informed from sources like the CDC or Department of Health. Take a break from watching the news. Stay well, exercise, and practice self-care to make sure you're physically and mentally fit. In our great region, we have a tradition of caring for each other and cooperating to get things done. We'll do it again now. For more, visit ibx.com COVID-19. Together, we will beat COVID-19. Talk Radio 1210. WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. Radio.com station from the Malamud and Associates Law Studios. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. That is a very, very robust, vigorous, acho sneeze. That's what that is. And that's not what we're talking about. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie.
1: Good morning, and welcome to your radio doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Today marks the beginning of our seventh month on the air. I'm very grateful for the support of Independence Blue Cross and to you as our listeners Last week, we learned about hepatitis from common viruses. Today, we'll focus on the effects of alcohol on the liver. Here with us today is Dr. Michael Lucy, professor of medicine and chief of gastroenterology and hepatology at the University of Wisconsin. Born in the lovely Dublin, Ireland, Dr. Lucy attended Trinity College. Following medical school and residency, he studied GI and hepatology at prestigious hospital centers in London. He has served in leadership roles at the University of Michigan as the medical director of liver transplants. We were very fortunate to call him our neighbor from 1995 to 2001 when he was director of hepatology at the University of Pennsylvania. Since 2001, he's the chief of division of GI and hepatology at University of Wisconsin. Dr. Lucy is a world-class scientist, highly respected for his work in all areas of GI and liver disease. He was the president of the American Society of Transplantation in 2003, then treasurer of the American Association of the Study of Liver Diseases for three years, and the editor in chief of their educational journal for six years. He has a special interest in the effects of alcohol on the liver and is an expert in liver transplant medicine. Welcome Michael. I think you should be named King Michael.
2: I'm not sure I can say anything afterwards at that introduction. Really, we should stop now because it's at the top. It's going to keep going down from now on.
1: It's like Elvis and Marilyn Monroe, I guess. No, you're only getting better with every day. So, Michael, let's talk about the liver in general. It has so many uh, vital functions metabolism of cholesterol. It makes factors that help in clotting and to fight infection. Bile helps in digestion and it clears waste and drugs. So what happens when things go awry?
2: Well, yes, the liver is a complicated organ and I'm sure you've had patients ask you, Marianne, how much of my liver is damaged? Mm -hmm. And the liver is a difficult organ to say that because it does so many things. It can't be reduced to just one percentage can't be said it's 50% damaged or 10% damaged because you've got to talk about all the different functions that it does but if you want a simple overall view of what the liver does it's the factory that all the food goes to everything that goes into our mouth goes through the bloodstream up to the liver before it's let around the body and the liver breaks down um unwanted chemicals that is in the bloodstream from our nutrients from the food makes new proteins, as you mentioned, makes cholesterol and bile. So it actually is both a clearinghouse and a factory, and it's a major point at protecting the interior of the body from all the stuff that comes in through our gut.
1: So when we talk about alcohol, is there a safe level that people should know about?
2: Well, that's a question, and as you know, it's a changing answer. Um mm-hmm. The the And recently uh, a statement has been made by a, a world body published in the English journal The Lancet saying that there is no safe amount of alcohol that's actually good for you. So taking the idea that, that it's always potentially harmful and indeed the American uh, Cancer Society have advised against drinking alcohol at all. And that seems like an extreme position. But it is true that we are now reducing what we think is a safe limit and so it's um i would say for for men and for women they really shouldn't be drinking more than two or three drinks a day and preferably not drinking every day but as i say there are some experts in the field that would rather us not drink at all
1: Mm -hmm. and i think people need to understand as well if you don't drink every day you can't make up for lost time on a Friday or Saturday because I often interview, especially my younger patients, the culture is such that, well, it's not drugs. It's just a few beers and a few shots on a Friday night. And I just think, oh, my goodness. So the definition of binge drinking is?
2: Well, yes, more, say, uh, more than four drinks at, at a session for a woman, more than five drinks mm-hmm. at a session for a man. And there's a lot of mm-hmm. discussion in the world of alcohol use as to what constitutes a drink. It's not the same in every country. So when you get into actually writing papers and trying to measure how much people are drinking, that becomes important. But for your listeners, I think they should be trying to limit their, their drinking to no more than two drinks at a time and, and try not to drink every day. If they could stick to that or less, they would be safe.
1: Sure. And so in the U.S., we say one drink or one serving is five ounces of wine, a 12 ounce beer or a 1.5 ounce uh, serving of 80 percent proof alcohol. And then, Michael, we know that the, the dose of that can affect women is lower or the serving because women usually have a smaller body size, different percent of weight in water and lower activity of the enzyme that breaks down alcohol. Tell us about that, if you would.
2: So we used to say, well, first of all, that's true. So women, it's been shown that are, w- women are at greater risk of developing injury to their liver from alcohol for the same amount of drinks consumed as men. So men seem to be more protected against injury. Yet, in the past, we used to see far more men with alcohol-related liver injury than women and alcohol-related cirrhosis than women. And that was because far fewer women drank Even though they had a a lower safety limit, far fewer women drank to that limit than did men. That's a social issue, and it's changing now. And we are seeing more younger and older women who are drinking sufficiently to damage their livers. Um, And it it relates to changing social mores um, shown by such things as the ease of which um, alcohol can be purchased in supermarkets placing of alcohol at the at the uh, checkout counter for example so that women don't have to wheel bottles of wine around in their trolley they can just pick it up at the door that's been spotted by the people involved in sales and so women are being targeted in that fashion so women yeah. need to be careful and we are seeing women with alcohol related liver disease more than i did when i was in training for example
1: Sure. And I think we should emphasize, too, that the type of alcohol does not alter your risk. Am I oh, right about that? No.
2: Oh, no. It's many a yeah. patient has told me, I don't drink, I just have beer. You know, the idea that, that it's only hard liquor is alcohol. No, it's alcohol is alcohol is alcohol. And um, the amount, so there is a, a what we call in, in the business a dose response curve. The more you drink, the more likely you're to get liver damage. But it's not a clean dose response curve. And there, so there are many patients will say, how could I have liver damage when the next guy at the bar I know, he drinks more than I do and he doesn't appear to have any damage. So there are factors related to the individual that make some people more susceptible. Um, uh, sex is one, as you mentioned, um, but there are others as well. There are inherited factors. Um, so there's a dose response but some people are more at risk than others. Everybody is at some degree of risk, however, and so that's why we advise these lower amounts.
1: So two questions then. Is that why we think there's a, uh, a, a genetic um, a chance to inherit alcoholism, a propensity to become alcoholic? Well, yes,
2: yeah, so so you're touching on now an important point, and that is that for most people who develop liver damage from alcohol they also have a drinking problem and uh, it's not it's it's not always the case so there may be those people who don't really who can stop and have no problems with once they're told that they are getting damage to their liver but for most people who are getting liver damage they also have a drinking problem now the nomenclature related to drinking problems is, is undergoing a change in the general public this is still called alcoholism and a uh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. You talk to people, they they refer to it as alcoholism. In the field of addiction medicine is now being called addiction, alcohol use disorder and that's to try to get to one of the central problems of this which is the stigma that having yes. a drinking problem carries in our society. And so to try not to stigmatise people so that they still feel the um, freedom to come and get help. So Alcohol use disorder is the term we're now using for alcoholism. Then just to, why do some people get alcohol use disorders and others not? And it's thought that maybe 50% of the propensity to develop alcohol use disorder is inherited. And the other 50% is environmental. So if you're living in a society where there's a strong pressure to remain abstinent, uh, much of the world... Uh, where Islam is the dominant religion and dominant social force, very much lower rates of consumption of alcohol in those countries, uh, then there's much less likelihood of developing alcohol use disorder there. But in those countries where alcohol is freely available, not everybody gets alcohol use disorder. It's, it's, and, 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 and this inherited part is part of the story, maybe 50% of the risk.
1: Very interesting. Let's take a quick break and we'll return in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.com. We're back with Dr. Michael Lucy here on Your Radio Doctor. Now, Michael, we've talked about the effect of alcohol on the liver, and we know that heavy intake can increase the risk for heart disease, especially if the patient also smokes. But we also know it can raise the risk for several types of cancer. Let's talk about that for a moment.
2: Well, yes, that's absolutely true. So taking a very broad look, alcohol contributes to many forms of death. And uh, it predominantly leads to death in younger people. So its effect on shortening lives is very profound in our society, and it leads to uh, injuries and death due to motor vehicle accidents, to domestic violence, to uh, accidents at work. But it also leads to liver injury, we were talking about. It damages other tissues as well, the pancreas. So chronic pancreatitis from alcohol is something that you would be very familiar with, Marianne, in your practice, I'm sure. And then yes. it can damage it can damage nerves, and then it can also cause cancer. So it, it's a prominent cause of cancer in the liver itself. That cancer is called hepatocellular carcinoma, largely in people already have cirrhosis from alcohol, and then getting getting cancer. More prominent in men than in women, but it also contributes to cancers that we don't even think about, such as cancer cancer of the breast, and it's then has effect on other cancers where it's acting with other carcinogenic influences. Many persons who drink to excess smoke to excess, and so that leads to a linkage with cancer of the lung. So moderation is absolutely the key here. We could save ourselves a lot of this sadness and pain if we were able to moderate alcohol use.
1: The key to all things in life is balance. There's a, there's a balance. And so when you look at uh, liver injury, where does it start, Michael? What's the spectrum of injury that we see from excess alcohol intake?
2: Well, there are some injuries which are temporary and are directly linked, linked to the alcohol and they would go away if you stop the alcohol. And that's mainly a buildup of fat inside the liver. And alcohol isn't the only thing that causes a buildup of fat, but it's an, it's an important one. However, if the drinking continues, that then leads to a slow, um, progressive damage to the liver, mainly with the formation of scarring. You can rather imagine it a little bit like ha- having um, a, a, a stew on, in, on in, in the oven at a low heat, are slowly cooking for hours that's what happens over years with the liver The slow uh, damage with scarring and the liver has these great powers of recovery so while the scarring and damage is going on the liver also has this recovery process going on side by side and the final step of, so that 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 slow in injury is an inflammatory injury sometimes called steatohepatitis when it's looked at under a microscope And that then leads to a third form, which is the scarring has caused damage which goes throughout the liver and is called cirrhosis. Now, for most people listening, they might think cirrhosis and alcohol damage are synonymous. But you know, Marianne, that that's not the case. There are many other things, viruses, forms of medicine, forms of inherited disorder that can cause cirrhosis. But 50% of, of the cirrhosis that we see in the world is due to alcohol. And all the rest only causes 50%. So that's the stage from this this uh, um, uh, temporary fat infiltration through this slow inflammatory process with scarring finally to cirrhosis. And then when cirrhosis is there, there's this increased risk of cancer.
1: And what's a shame though is that the early stage, just fat in the liver, the patient has no symptoms. So unless you treat yourself to a yearly physical where we get routine labs and we say, gee, these liver function studies are slightly abnormal, or when we examine the abdomen, find a slightly enlarged liver and find the fatty liver, there's a chance to say diet and exercise will bring you back to baseline. So it's so important that people get their annual physical. So then how do you make the diagnosis?
2: Well, I'm good. Pick up on what you say as well for, for another thing is that in addition to the annual physical, we really would hope that primary care physicians, uh, physician assistants, nurse, nurse practitioners in primary care, uh, emergency room physicians would actually ask patients, tell me about your drinking. How many times do you drink a week? How many drinks do you have at, at one time? And if they get answers that say, I drink every day or once or twice a week, I drink four drinks a time, that they stop and say, That sounds too much. You really Mm -hmm. should stop. And this has been called SBIRT, uh, which is Screening, Brief Intervention, Referral for Treatment. Because most of the patients who come to um, um, a a liver doctor, a, a gastroenterologist like you, Marianne, most of them have already had several opportunities where they see nurses or doctors, who if it had included those questions in part of their regular work might have found that the patient is drinking too much. So sure. stopping before the damage is done is far better than trying to capture the patient when the damage is ongoing and trying to fix it. And as you know, at a certain point, the fixing of it becomes very, very mm-hmm. difficult.
1: Yes, and I think too, um, when we talk about fat in the liver as the first level of injury if it becomes inflammatory steatohepatitis steo fat um that that's when the liver disease can progress and the other common causes of fat in liver are carrying increased weight and i always tell my patients that fat can deposit in your liver if you are carrying too much weight or if you drop your weight precipitously so i worry about yo-yo dieting big increases and big decreases can also a little fat in the liver can um, put them on the cascade of more dangerous. And, you know, the other thing is, too, if somebody does have liver disease, as you say, the history is so important to say, do you smoke? Oh, no, did you ever? How much do you drink? And um, how about over-the-counter medicines, herbs, supplements, like green tea extract? I'm sure you've seen people who take the extract of green tea, yes, that can cause chemical hepatitis?
2: Yes, and so... The history is important, and understanding what the patient is doing uh, with their life is important. Um, the the um, we are also seeing patients who are doing more than one thing, and that's the person who is uh, uh, twenty or thirty pounds overweight. Uh, the weight is distributed around the middle of their abdomen. They've got extra fat in their liver from that, and they're also drinking uh, a six pack. Um, I was going to say six pack of Lion's because that's a Wisconsin drink. I don't know if you're. Oh. It's what is it? Maybe Rolling Rock. I mean, so there must be. A, I should give you a a, a Pennsylvania equivalent.
1: Um, <laughs> and I think it's a Michael's hard lemonade. No. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yes. That was you're just a plan. Any particular brand? But but so <laughs> that they're, they're they're already overweight in a significant way, and they're also drinking too much. And so yeah, people. This is the the the, the um. Taking control of your life is one of the things that really this is talking about. And if the the, persons are listening to this and say, that could be me, this is a moment in which they can start taking control of their life. And it really is possible to do that, to to control these things and to help their health for the longer term.
1: And it's so hard if people don't have uh, support in their lives, as you say. And now with COVID, I was reading that... um, there is an increased risk of alcohol related liver disease in places where there's a colder climate and fewer hours of sunlight. COVID hasn't helped with that. So, when we come back, I'd love to hear your thinking on the gut microbiome. There's a growing appreciation that ha- that has a lot of effect on pathogenesis of liver disease. So, let's take another quick break and we'll be back with Dr. Michael Lucy.
0: Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed on radio.com. Listen to the show at your convenience. Go to radio.com and in the search bar type in Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand.
1: And hey, we're back with Dr. Michael Lucy from the University of Wisconsin. Michael, the old expression, you are what you eat, may not be completely true, but. There's so much uh, talk and, and research about the blossom with the, the microbiome of the gut. Do you think that relates to alcohol-related liver disease or liver disease in general?
2: I do think it's, it's very important uh, in liver in liver disease. So let's just give a little account of what that is for the listeners. Um, it may come as a surprise to listeners to hear that they're walking around carrying trillions of bacteria, not millions. Trillions of bacteria, along with fungi and viruses and other organisms, all happily living in partnership with them in their gut. And it turns out that these organisms are vital for our life. And so they help us in many ways. Um, but they have to stay where they're meant to stay. And they but they occasionally parts of them break down products, get into the bloodstream that flows to the, to the liver and the liver, again, acts as the main barrier, preventing those, those um, molecules getting into the general circulation. So that's a natural mm-hmm. process. Certain circumstances, having too much fat in the abdomen is one of them, but drinking too much is another, weakens the barrier between the gut and the blood supply to the liver. So lets more of those molecules in. And so that's one of the ways that alcohol promotes this inflammatory, slow-burning process that goes on in, a, in a, a person with alcohol use disorder. The, the, the gut barrier is no longer as uh, um, well-functioning as it should. It's allowing more bacterial products go in, and they're setting up this slow, slow inflammatory response. That's the gut microbiome. And there's some evidence that it's not just um, bacteria, that fungi, which are the fungi are in lower concentration, but that they may have, a, may have an element as well. So um, the, 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 it turns out that the um, process to cause alcohol-related damage in the liver is quite complicated. Uh, people sure. have tried to find me- medicines that would interfere with this process at various stages, so far, none has really made a big difference. I think it's been a disappointment because there is one thing that really does make a difference, and that's stopping drinking. And so mm-hmm. none, none of the other interventions that we have tried to do, other than liver transplantation in the person who's dying, have had the impact of stopping drinking.
1: But and it's fascinating. It's you... crucial. Yeah, it's fascinating what you say about uh, the fungal elements as well. Sometimes there's been a question whether candida overgrowth will make a difference. So I wanna say, Michael, we share a similar timeline. When we were in training, HIV didn't have a name in the beginning, um, and thank goodness, we've learned a lot from that. That has helped us with other diseases, cancer, and then we thought hepatitis C would take more lives than HIV, and thank the Lord, now there's a cure for that. Now, would you say that fatty liver will soon be the number one cause for liver transplant? Fatty liver, not just from alcohol, but sure. from dietary? Yeah. So
2: if you take fatty liver as all the causes of fatty liver, that's absolutely true. If you distinguish between fatty liver and the consequences, the inflammatory and scarring consequences of fatty liver, so fatty liver leading to cirrhosis or cirrhosis and cancer, that is related to cancer, it's a, it's a alcohol on one hand and it's a, to the non-alcoholic forms on the other, um, which is metabolic syndrome, which is related to being having too much weight and associated with the diabetes and sleep apnea. Uh. You would think that the latter is going to take over. There is a catch, however. Patients with that syndrome, diabetes, um, increased fat in the liver, um, sleep apnea, um, high blood pressure, they all get a greater tendency to heart disease and cerebrovascular disease. So even though some of them get cirrhosis of the liver, those other illnesses are actually more prominent in the group as a whole and so are often the reason why they're not actually um, suitable candidates for transplantation. So it's it's a moot point whether the so-called non-alcoholic fatty liver diseases will take over from uh, um alcohol related liver disease as the most common reason for transplantation right at the moment 35% of the patients being transplanted in the United States have alcohol related liver disease and about 30 have non alcohol fatty liver disease and then the rest is made up by the, all the other liver diseases that we know
1: mhm no well, that makes perfect sense when you explain it that way so when we talk about acute liver failure um for instance, we're, we're looking at people that have known cirrhosis, perhaps. That's not a reason why you would uh, perform a transplant. However, as they reach that middle stage, you watch those patients in case they do need a liver transplant. But I guess what I'm leading to is, how do you decide someone's a, a candidate for a liver transplant short hmm. of acute liver failure?
2: Yeah. Well, liver transplantation should be, in my opinion, seen as a treatment. So it's another treatment. And the question is, where does that treatment fit in? However, it's different from other treatments in this way because there's only a limited number of livers to go around. So when one person gets a liver, that means all the other people who are waiting have to stand back and wait in line. So it has an impact on a, on a population that you don't know in ways that choosing to treat somebody for diabetes or high blood pressure does not. So that puts a huge responsibility on the doctors, nurses and the other people involved in transplantation to make wise choices as to who gets the donated livers. It's still the case that the vast majority of livers used in the United States come from patients who have been declared brain dead. So there's a smaller population where the person is is a living donor, but that's a much smaller population.
1: Mm -hmm. So we have we have to go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I just would say with living donors and not to sound disrespectful, but just like a starfish can lose a piece and regenerate, the person who donates, they're not giving obviously their whole liver, but the listeners will reinforce that. By giving a a portion of their liver that the the donor's liver can regenerate. Did I explain right. that too simple in a too simplified no, no, way? No, you did
2: very well. And I, 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 knowing that this is for the Delaware Valley, I'd recommend your readers to go in, uh, into uh, in the to the Art Institute, run up the stairs like Rocky, but go inside. <gasps> there's a magnificent uh, uh, um, picture uh, uh, of Prometheus um, as by by Rubens. It covers one wall. And there you see him chained to the rock and the, and the bird. Sometimes it's a blackbird. I think I've, in that one, it may be a blackbird. I forget. Pecking away his liver. That was, the, that was Prometheus's oh, punishment yeah. for stealing fire from the gods. Every night his liver was pecked away and every day it grew back. So it's just amazing that the ancients understood this power of the liver to regrow. So the same happens when a donor gives half their liver to their brother or to their mother, uh, their own liver grows back in the same way as that picture in the Philadelphia Art Institute. Well worth Mm -hmm. going to see. It's fantastic.
1: And sometimes we don't realize it's a gift until we give it away. Um, Michael, is there a slightly different protocol if a person has liver disease from alcohol intake? In other words, um, I know with acute liver failure, it's a form of treatment, but uh, prior to that, maybe a period of abstinence no, I think or the, no? I think
2: there's, yeah, I think there is definitely a, a distinction that the patients with alcohol-related liver disease get, which is different from everyone else. They get a far more uh, searching scrutiny of whether they're going to be able to take care of the liver after, after they're transplanted. And that's the question. Are they going to be able to take are they going to recover and take care of the liver and staying off alcohol is one of the aspects of taking care of the liver so we do our best to to understand who is not able to take care of the liver and who is and so that's a big issue in the whole field of alcohol-related liver disease trying to work out whether this person could take care of a liver after transplantation.
1: Well, among the other things that are wonderful about you, I love to hear you talk about AUD, alcohol use disorder. You look at that as a disease and you look at the whole person. You have a person who has um, a, a use disorder, not at a person with a liver that's diseased. And I, I, The empathy that I hear, or sympathy, I should say, when you speak is is just beautiful. So if a patient does have a transplant, follow-up visits are essential. Now they're on immunosuppressive drugs that open the door for other issues like diabetes and um, uh, cancers, as we said. So they need to come back once a month for blood pressure checks, urinalysis checks. Every six months you check for diabetes, yearly DEXA scans. You encourage the patients to get their, all their vaccines, hep A, B, flu, pneumonia.
2: Absolutely. Dave? So it's, it's, a, it's a full-time job to be a successful liver transplant recipient, whether, you're, whether alcohol or not was the underlying cause, and the patient has to commit to it. But as you know from many of your patients, Marianne, they really do. This is a treatment that is life-transforming.
1: Yes, Michael, it really is a miracle that this treatment is available. Let's take a little break and we'll come back for the closing. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. Dr. Marianne will return, but first, a medical message from one of our partners. And we're back for our final segment with Dr. Michael Lucy. Michael, you've given us so much wonderful information. What questions have yet to be answered? In what direction is your interest in research?
2: I'm going to pick three broad areas just to mention. Uh, thank you for that great question, Marianne. The first is, as you look gathered from talking today, we still need to know more about how alcohol actually causes damage to the liver. And you mentioned the gut microbiome and the linkage of the gut microbiome to the formation of scar and the resolution of scar, how sc- So that's a big area of basic science research, understanding injury and repair in the liver and its relationship to the microbiome. The second is related to liver transplantation, which we were talking about. And that's really to do with the processes that we actually put into place for selecting patients. You were asking me about that. And so how do we do that? Is it fair? Do we treat everybody the same? And are we getting the right answers? Are the people who are being selected the ones who should be selected? And are the ones who are being uh, declined, are they the ones who really should not get transplanted? That's a big area of research challenging to do. And the third is about alcohol use disorder itself, particularly in the setting of alcohol-related liver disease. Most of the studies that have looked at treatments of alcohol use disorder have specifically excluded patients with liver damage now we need to look at those patients who have signs of liver damage and see whether by psychotherapies or by pharmacotherapies, that's by psychological interventions or by medicines, can we help them stop drinking to excess and get back to sobriety? So those three things, damage and repair in the liver due to alcohol, fairness and equity in selection and outcome, and finally in enabling patients with alcohol use disorder get back maintain sobriety
1: yes and i'm sure it's done fairly you have a comprehensive center that considers all those issues and offers uh psychosocial support to people as well as you say that's the key in in recuperating and and really um being able to maintain all the visits and and have that good support for the checkups are there any contraindications such as uh, maybe extreme heart and lung disease that the person won't be able to tolerate the surgery sure.
2: or so there are contraindications for any patient uh, with uh, towards a liver transplant so yes se- severe heart disease that would prevent them from uh, surviving the operation disseminated cancer the severe heart disease patients might get a heart liver uh, many years ago the governor of um, uh, Pennsylvania yes. got a heart That's liver right. from stuff right. he, was suffering, from, he was suffering from amyloidosis not, not yes. due to alcohol but just
1: but that, Bob Casey. so there are mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, Bob Casey, but so yeah. so, but but that's an unusual outcome. So more commonly, uh, severe heart disease would stop a person getting a liver transplant, or disseminated cancer would be another example. So that's across the board, whether it's alcohol or not. With regard to alcohol, we still have to struggle with this, the problem of the person who is drinking to excess and has been drinking very recently. Uh, is that person safe to transplant? And that's o- ongoing research about that. And, we're, and all I can say at the moment is we're doing our best, but I'm not sure our best is as good as it can be. Um, so I think that's... I was just going to mention one thing for your readers. They might wonder about reading about this. If you've, I'm yes. sure you've got a very literate group of listeners. But one of my colleagues has written a very nice personal memoir of being a liver transplant surgeon. His name is Joshua Mesrick. It's called When When Death Becomes Life. So if if any of your listeners would like to... get get a greater sense of these decisions, how do we make them? What's it like in real life? i recommend Josh Mesrick's book.
1: Thank you. I'm going to put that on our website. And I want to thank you for joining us today from Wisconsin. And you know we want you back here in Philly. I'm sure you miss cheesesteaks and Rocky Balboa, but I will give you this. Other than the St. Joe Hawks, Hawks go flying in, fight song. One of my favorites is University of Wisconsin. On Wisconsin, on Wisconsin. Yes. Do you love your fight song?
2: You're doing very, very well. But you didn't mention
1: Scrapple. Oh, of course, Scrapple. My favorite. Finger licking.
2: Finger licking. (laughs) It's only good if it came off the floor, I think.
1: But I think better than a fight song. I'm going to ask you to close uh, two promises. Our next interview will be in Ireland. And I'd like you to close the show with a few bars of When Irish Eyes Are Smiling, if you don't mind. Well, you know,
2: Marianne, what what an idea. If you had told me that, I wouldn't even have joined at the beginning.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you take care, and I can't wait to see you when COVID quiets down. Thank you, Michael.
2: Thank you you very much, Marianne. This has been a pleasure and, uh, and an honor. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you for all your great work. Your real champion this week, the road paved with good intentions. Dave Brown considers himself to be a lucky guy and firmly believes everybody is great at something. As a high school sophomore, he was a whiz at playing geometry. His teacher marveled as he mastered every book she could supply. Dave ranked number six in Ohio State competition for high school students. His dad had a medical condition that made it hard to tolerate the heat of day, so he worked the night shift at a nearby high school. One day, the principal happened to read about Dave's math skills in the local paper and mentioned the Naval Academy to the proud father. Dave heard the word military and said, nah. But as a senior facing college tuition, the Naval Academy became more appealing. Of course, plebe year would be tough, and it was hard to go back after Christmas break, but he was grateful for the opportunity. As it happened, Dave was the smallest guy in his battalion, became the coxswain in the fastest boat. And in that final race, they were ahead by several lengths, but a stray buoy in their path cost them the trophy. Not skill, but fate chose the winner and Dave learned the valuable lesson of acceptance. Fate didn't always disappoint. In 1970, Navy played Notre Dame in Philadelphia. After the football game, Dave and a friend attended a mixer at Chestnut Hill College. His eyes fell on Joan, the girl of his dreams, and she agreed to dance. The perfect match, they married in 1975 and eventually settled nearby. Dave and Joan had a lot in common. Dave, a specialist in IT technology, and Joan, one of the first female IT programmers for the Navy. They also shared a love of walking and were members of the Liberty Bell Wanderers, a walking club. Dave was club president for five years. Born in Ohio, he grew up near the National Road, the stagecoach path planned by George Washington and implemented by Thomas Jefferson. In 1811, builders began the road that would lead settlers to the west. Dave treasured a book about the road, A Gift from Joan. The couple enjoyed frequent hiking trips till their own road of life took a turn. In March 2011, Joan had vague symptoms and testing revealed ovarian cancer. Despite her strong will and valiant effort, she lost her battle that August at age 58. Dave was crushed but inspired when he happened to see a movie about a man who lost his wife to cancer. In 1996, the man ran the distance of a marathon every day for 75 days from his home in Minneapolis to the Atlanta Summer Olympics. The plan was clear. Dave had tallied over 8,900 miles of running over 30 years. He could walk the road he loved and raise money for the Ovarian Cancer Research Fund in Jones' honor. He covered a half marathon every day until he reached Lewisburg, Kansas. But after 1,234 miles, his tired, swollen legs told him it was time to stop. For 89 days he was supported by family and friends from other walking clubs. It all just happened. Only four nights in hotels. The rest of the time he was a guest. He even visited four aunts who happened to live along the road. One last chance to see them all before they died. Dave says, Joan made me a better person. My whole life prepared me for this walk. His message, if everyone tried to help other people, we'd have a better world. Since then, Dave has volunteered for 6 nonprofits. Five have closed during early COVID. His focus now? Delivering blood from the Red Cross Blood Bank to 67 hospitals all over the state and beyond. Baltimore, Reading, Brunswick, New Jersey. 490 miles round trip to Johnstown? No problem. When I heard this story, Dave had delivered blood during the pandemic every day for 120 days. Like all the other magical points on his road of life, it just so happens The average lifespan of a red blood cell is 120 days. Joan is smiling down on him. Congratulations to our champion, Dave Brown. Join us next Sunday for our very special guest, Sister Mary Scullion. Hear about Project Home and her beautiful work supporting those who experience homelessness. Listen to our shows on YourRadioDoctor.com. Stay well and stay tuned for the sounds of Sinatra. And remember, your health is your wealth.
0: Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Kraus at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.